Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. All right, hour number two of your Ben Jarofsky show for Friday, January 29th is brought to you by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Reader, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Every Friday, the Ben Jarofsky Show, Ramon Hussein, editor columnist for the Chicago Sun-Times, uh, joins us. Uh, welcome back to the show, Ramana. Hi, thanks for having me again. <laughs> I thought we lost you there for a second. <laughs> Uh, no, all right. There's so much to talk about. And um, where do I start? Well, let me just start with uh, AOC versus Ted Cruz. And uh, I talked about this earlier in the show. Uh, I did a riff on uh, their little showdown as part of the whole GameStop controversy. Um, uh, and it's, it's, it's really, it's interesting, uh, Romana. Uh, AOC has been unrelenting in her criticism of Ted Cruz. In my opinion, this is my opinion. I believe it's warranted. I believe that Ted Cruz uh, and Josh Hawley and the other Republicans who signed on to the preposterous notion that there was fraud in a campaign that Joe Biden clearly won, who worked a part of Donald Trump's efforts to manipulate folks into feel, thinking, believing something that was unreal, was real. They have a responsibility to be held accountable for their behavior. But now Republicans are saying you're mean AOC when you pick on Ted Cruz, you're going too far. You're not uh, promoting unity. You're uh, continuing the divisiveness that Joe Biden says he uh, uh, wants uh, to eradicate. So you should back down and just forget everything that happened on January 6th. I have a lot of trouble with this. Ramana, love to hear your thoughts. Should AOC back down from her assistance that people like Ted Cruz be held accountable before it went down on January 6th? Go. In my opinion, and in the opinion of many others, um, I think AOC is right to call on any Republican, including Ted Cruz, to be held accountable for what happened. Um, I think I'm, I, I know that a lot of people are just tired of or at least I don't know. I can personally say I'll say my opinion. I just think this whole like, oh, let's move on is this attitude is just so aggravating because if it was any other group there, those those are certain people who um, rioted that day. Everybody would have been like, never forget wearing American flag pins. January 6th would be etched in our memories forever. Now everybody's like, oh, let's just put this behind us and let's all get together and hold hands. And I I don't think that's necessarily acceptable for a lot of people. And I think for people to like applaud any sort of Republican for all of a sudden waking up to all these Issues that were happening on one night after they slept on it one night after four years, they decided like, oh, yeah, you know, maybe there is something a little fishy going on here. 
I don't know. I think they should be held accountable. I don't think we're going to, I don't think we need to move past this, um, this quickly. Um, and I think AOC is warranted in her, um, in her, like, you know, in her tweets, you know, when she, when, when Ted Cruz all of a sudden said that he agreed with her when it came to um, Robinhood, that trading app being investigated for its restricted trades on GameStop and letting the Wall Street people invest. So it, it was, I, I did see the back and forth a little and, you know, there's been like articles written about it. So I think I am in, in the opinion that, you know, I'm a journalist. I think everybody should be held accountable and for people just to be able to walk away I don't think that's acceptable. I'm with you 100 percent there. I got a big kick out of it. It seemed like Ted Cruz. Well, first of all, I give AOC credit because she jumped on this issue before the Republicans did. That's why I said, oh, my God, it's, she, she really just has a sense of, a sense of like, where the news is, is trending, uh, the direction that the party should be on almost any issue. She's so quick and so fast. And I think that's why Republicans hate her so much because she's so effective at uh, communicating without the media as the intermediary in, in, in a totally different message, but much the same way as Donald Trump. Uh, just she, she controls the flow of information and that frustrates uh, Republicans uh, when they see someone, at, a Democrat being so good at the game as Trump is. And then, so what Ted Cruz tried to do, he tried to, like jump on her bandwagon <laughs> to make it seem like he hadn't been trashing her for all these weeks, months, years. And she just said, no, you can't do that. You can't just, you know, uh, use my star power to promote your shabby career. I give her credit for that. Your thoughts? Yeah, I do too. And, and she, you know, she talked about how, like, you know, she said to Ted Cruz that you almost got me killed on January 6th. And she, you know, I think, I think there was like some back and forth and then she's like, well, what do you want me to do? Like hug you and everything is going to be okay. So, I mean, I think, I think, I think she's right. Like I said, in holding him accountable. And it's like, it's like he, for all those four years, you know, people, he was attacking her and all of a sudden he wants to be friends. It's like, oh, let's be friends. It's like kid, kids playing in the playground. It's like some kid hitting you or pulling your hair for the last four years and, you know, something, you know wrong happens or his friends abandon him and he's like oh i think we should be friends now so i i think i think i think she is right in holding him accountable and i thought i have to admit i will say my opinion on this matter i was on aoc's side on this matter although nobody would be shocked with that so. <laughs> well you uh you're entitled to opinions you are a columnist and uh, you're also a human being so you're entitled to your opinions uh and uh Immediately when AOC uh, criticized Ted Cruz, uh, there was a senator, uh, excuse me, a congressman in Texas whose name is Chip Roy. I'm not making that up. That's his name, Chip Roy, and who used to work for Ted Cruz. Uh, and he, he said that she had gone too far and he called on Nancy Pelosi to chastise her, uh, which is, in my humble opinion, a favorite tactic of Republicans to play uh, the victim card and constantly sobbing that they're being picked on by the mean left. Uh, my question I, is, my know. question to Chip is, by the way, it just sounds like a very re Republican name, not to stereotype, but my question is, did Chip ever say Donald Trump went too far with his tweets? I, I am just curious. It's just the hypocrisy is just incredible. Yeah, the hypocrisy is incredible. And then it gets in the issue of cancel culture. Because when I saw that, I'm like, Chip, I'm just saying, it looks like you're trying to cancel her culture. <laughs> okay, let's I'm just throwing that out there, all right? So uh, 
got me thinking about the whole concept of cancel culture. Uh, in your mind, what is cancel culture? How do you define cancel culture? Because I know you follow this uh, with skepticism yeah. from both from all different areas. But how would you define cancel culture? Well, I, I think of cancel culture immediately what comes to my mind is holding people accountable. And I think people have been held accountable in the past. But I told you and we've talked about this before in the show. In the past, it was only certain groups that were held accountable for anything they said. They would be chastised. They would be usually people of color, from my opinion, from from my vantage point, from what I've seen. I just feel like now that, you know, people who have been held power or who, who have been held in high esteem have all of a sudden been called out for things that, you know, might be unacceptable in, you know, and they probably, these are things that are probably unacceptable for a long time. I mean, you know, I know Woody Allen has talked about cancel culture, but it's like, he's been doing things that should have canceled him a long time ago, but because he was Woody Allen, white guy, he really was never criticized until recently. And I, and I feel like telling him like people like him, I'm like, you're like, you're like, a hundred years old almost. I mean, you got to live your life the way you wanted to without being held accountable for anything. Meanwhile, you have people like Barack Obama when he was running for president. I'm just giving an example. He had to cut a lot of people from his life if he wanted to, or he would have been faced, he would have been basically had to cancel him, you know, be canceled by the, you know, the, you know, general American public. And I think people of color have been canceled for a long, for a long time. People find something, you know, if there's somebody who's held, um, you know, uh, an elected position or on a board, somebody connects them to something and they go, well, this is controversial. And, you know, they end up leaving the board. I've seen that happen with a lot of people of color in the last few years. I just feel like, and I'm not one of those people that are, it's like, okay, if somebody says something, you know, I'm not saying that people can't redeem themselves, but I think that a lot of people, a lot of the panic that's happening, it's from people who never have been held accountable. And so they feel like now that there's a certain class of people, a certain group of elites that are being held accountable, everybody got, everybody has their like underwear in a twist or their panties in a twist. Everybody's like getting all freaked out. So I just think it's being held accountable. That's what I hear. You know, I think people make it sound like it's more serious than it is. And if you're if you want don't want to be canceled, you re respond, have a good respond re response ready for something that you did that is, you know, questionable. No, you raise a very good point about Woody Allen. I mean, for years and years and years, uh, Woody Allen made movies in which uh, older men were sort of like preying on younger women and in the worldview of, of Woody Allen's movies, the younger women were just enchanted by the older men. Yeah. And it was like his fantasy. That's clearly what it is. Like they're so smart, the older guys, and it doesn't matter what they look like or how old they are or what have you. It's like the young women are just like, Oh my God, that's so brilliant. And being with you is just making my life better. I, and I, I was a uh, confession time. I have a confession to make, Romana. I love Woody Allen back in the 70s. You know what I'm oh, saying? I'm sure you did. You know, I loved him. Annie Hall. Yeah, I love Annie Hall. Uh, but I saw it recently, by the way. It did not. Uh, it did it not hold up? No. I, I I went to this thing. Let me share this with you, Romana. Uh, this is before the show, before I started uh, having you come on as a regular on the show, where I just went to the 70s kick, where I started watching all the movies that I loved in the 70s to see which ones held up. 
Uh, maybe I did it. I, I can't remember when I did it. But anyway, one of the movies I watched was Annie Hall. That was one of, the, one of the movies that least held up from the 70s. And I watched movies. I was so into movies in the 70s. But the other ones like Chinatown. And Roman Polanski, very problematic man. He directed Chinatown. Well, of course. You know. Uh, so it's like really weird to say, put aside the, the rape charge. It's a great movie. You know, other than the rape charge. So it sounds really weird. But the movie still holds up. But yeah. Annie Hall did not. Go ahead. Yeah, that's interesting. And nobody's saying like, I mean, I there's musicians I like. I mean, John, I love the Beatles, and the Beatles were not perfect. I mean, I read about, I read books about John Lennon and the Beatles, and John Lennon didn't treat his first wife very well. I think he was abusive to her. But I love John Lennon. You know, here he is singing about peace, and you know, imagine, and you know, he was hitting his wife. So it's not like people I have like you know been impressed with with their art haven't been problematic because nobody's perfect at the end of the day, but it's like the whole redeeming thing where you can redeem yourself. I'm not saying that people can't evolve, but there have been a lot of people like, I guess Woody Allen was my example because I'm just thinking like he got to be problematic for all his life. And he was like, everybody thought he was, you know, the whole thing was, you know, for, I don't know. I know my husband Mick says women liked him too. Then I'm like, I don't know what, I mean, I guess some women like him, too, because it was cool to like Woody Allen. But it's like he was able to be problematic for most of his life. So for him to be held accountable now and is, like, you know, I, I don't know how old he is now, but is Octarian, he's 80s, 80s or something. Yeah, he's got to be 80 at least. Yeah. So it's like, OK, you're, be, you're, you're being held accountable now. So, I mean, just deal with it. Why not? Well, that, that's that was the point I was. I went on a tangent about how his movies are, are have dated. Although I still like Small Time Crooks. There are these movies I still like, like Small Time Crooks. Anyway, um, I believe like Woody Allen complains about cancel culture because people uh, legitimately criticize not just his life off camera, but the uh, relationships that I was just talking about on camera. Oh, for sure. This obsession he has with older men being uh, the, the alleged infatuation women have with older men. And so I would like to see Woody Allen address that. So yeah. to, to your point, it's like, it's not just they're picking on you because they don't like you. It's they're criticizing you legitimately. What's your response? Do you follow what I'm saying? I, I would like to see, but instead of falling back, oh, they just want to cancel me. Yeah instead of just you know, responding to the criticism. That's what for I would sure. like to say. For sure. And that's what it is. It's like, you know, people are being held accountable. Now, like I said, it's like a certain group of people are being held accountable. Now everybody's getting all like frustrated because they're being held accountable. That's what I think. All right. Now uh, that leads me uh, to what do you do about Mar Marjorie Taylor Greene, <laughs> who is the newly elected Congresswoman uh, from a district in Georgia and, uh, Evidence is coming out. You talk about Woody Allen's behavior. Marjorie Taylor Greene, I think, far exceeds Woody Allen's behavior. Uh, it's just abusive behavior. I, I don't know if you'd had an opportunity to look at that video. I did. I did. Okay. I watched it, as you told me to do. <laughs> Gave her a homework assignment. Uh, tracking David Hogg, the, um, uh, the young activist, the uh, gun control activist, as he was walking down the street, just totally accosting him. Uh, uh -huh. Uh, making threatening, what was it, Facebook or social media comments about Nancy Pelosi. Um, and yet, Republicans say that's cancel culture too. I mean, what do you do about, in your humble opinion, about Congressman, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene? 
I don't know, because she's not my problem. That's the way I'm seeing it. I did not create Marjorie Taylor Greene. I think one of the things is to try to keep, we have to fix the culture that has allowed her to become a congresswoman. I mean, this is a woman that was tweeting um, hateful, racist tweets for a long time, even before she was elected. So people do find this acceptable. She hasn't been canceled. In fact, she's been embraced through the fact that she can become a congresswoman shows you that she hasn't been canceled. She believes, um, you know, she said racist things about African-Americans. Uh, she said racist things about Muslims and all other groups. Uh, she, you know, she's a Donald Trump supporter. She's allowed to be a Donald Trump supporter. But, you know, she has said that, you know, she believes in the QAnon theories that, you know, the Democrats are like running a pedophile ring and are cannibals. And this is this is a, a considered acceptable to a lot of people. So she hasn't been canceled. So. I think it's the culture that has allowed for her to become a congresswoman. That is what needs to be dismantled. I mean, you look at someone like Donald Trump, like the fact that he became president, you need to dismantle that culture. I don't know how that can be dismantled, but it has to be a cultural sort of, I don't know, force or something. Education needs to be out there and it doesn't matter. I feel like it's a very, it's a problem that we're going to have for a long time. I know we were talking about the Capitol riots. That's not going to go away. Those threats aren't going to go away. Um, I just posted a wire story, an Associated Press wire story about how Capitol Hill is going to have security for a long time because of what happened on January 6th. So this is something that needs to be addressed on many levels, I think, I think, you know, the government needs to look into it. I think people, communities need, need to look into it. It's something that's really compli complicated and complex. And I don't know how it's going to be dismantled. I'm not from Georgia and I can easily say that I'm not part of the QAnon crowd or know anybody that's part of the QAnon crowd, but it's something that needs to be addressed for sure. Well, uh, to that point, uh, I think I should allow you to do a bit of a, a victory lap. I told you I was going to raise it, so I might as well. Uh, you came a long time ago, may have been on the radio uh, when I was still on the radio. That you came on, and uh, I was a typical lefty, and I said something nice about Tulsi Gabbard, and you immediately corrected me. Uh, and I had uh, our mutual friend Samina Mustafa was on the show yesterday, uh, and we talked uh, at length about this. But Tulsi Gabbard, the uh, congresswoman from Hawaii, ran briefly uh, for president as a Democrat, is now definitely moving into MAGA country. Um, and she had a series of tweets last week. Very interesting. Uh, she was talking about the civil liberty, libertarian aspect of the government's uh, crackdown on far right uh, Trump loving uh, militiamen and QAnon advocates who were threatening uh, Congress people and threatening to kill them and uh, uh, storming the Capitol. And she's very concerned about a backlash. And uh, when I read her, I had just had to smile a little bit to think about uh, the things that you said. And uh, I'm giving all the shout outs, Samita Mustafa and Amisha Patel, three Indian American women who uh, came on my show uh, and just sort of opened up my eyes uh, to Tulsi Gabbard. So I know you must think it's what? Ironic, mildly, to see suddenly <laughs> Tulsi Gabbard worried about um a backlash and a loss of civil liberties when she has her own sort of what 
difficulties on the subject when it comes to Muslims. Talk a little bit about it, Romano. Yeah, I mean, she's, she's you know, one of the things a lot of Indian Muslims didn't like her from the beginning, you know, when she was touted as like this wonderful, like, you know, oh, here's this Hindu American running for Congress and she has a military background. And then, you know, of course, all these, all the Muslims and, you know, a lot of other Indians were like, um, hello, she's like, she cozies up to Narendra Modi. And she was also, um, she's also uh, cozied up to the Syrian dictators as well. So I think a lot of the things and a lot of the comments, that she, and then she's also made a lot of anti-Muslim comments. So yeah, maybe for the general public, she wasn't problematic, but for a lot of people that were part of my community, they're just like, oh, hell no. You know, that was the, that was the reaction to her. And, and it was kind of interesting seeing like, there were a lot of people on the left who were like putting her on this pedestal for a while. I mean, there, there was a lot of places on the North side where I'd see signs for her and I'd be like, Oh, interesting. You know? So it's, it, it, it depends on what, you know, how deep, how far you dig into like a lot of these, you know, politicians and, you know, your background. And so I know when she stood up, everybody was like, Oh my God. And then, you know, the one thing that stood out for us, she is an Indian, which doesn't matter, but um, you know, her name is Dulce, which means basil. So, you know, some of us found that kind of funny, but that's fine. Um, but yeah, it, yeah, she, she does have a record for her anti-Muslim comments and uh, making comments when it comes to, you know, she always talks about military intervention, but I think she's okay with military intervention when it deals with certain groups of people from what I've seen in her record. So there's been, there's been a countless of articles written about her, which I'm sure you've read ever since or are aware of ever since. No, my eyes have been open about uh, Tulsi. And, and again, she's uh, I, just one character. She's not, she's not, I don't even know if she's in the Democratic Party. I think she's sort of the Democrats equivalent of Adam Kinzinger, who is the Republican uh, from the 16th Congressional District, who has is clearly toying with the notion of leaving the Republican Party uh, because he's so offended by Donald Trump. Well, uh, Tulsi Gabbard is clearly toying with the notion of leaving the Democratic Party, whether she has officially or not, because she's offended by the powers that be in the Democratic Party. And there's legitimate points uh, that uh, she makes from time to time about the cautioning about the backlash. But uh, yeah, you're right. It's just inexcusable, uh, her attitudes in the past. And it's just kind of hard. Again, it gets back to the issue. Is anybody going to be held accountable for the things that they say, you know, in the past, are we just going to look the other way because we agree with them on a particular point? And that, and my next issue I'd love to uh, talk to you about, another uh, controversial character. I talked about her a couple of days ago, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, former press secretary uh, to Donald Trump, uh, is running for uh, governor of Arkansas. And be- because I'm, for some reason, on the fundraising list of the Tea Party, I got her fundraising appeal. I analyzed it the other day, but one point I didn't make when I, I talked to you about is like on the fundraising appeal, uh, it's highlighting why uh, she is uh, should be supported by Republicans. And I think there's three things they mentioned: F- family loves family, uh, Second Amendment right supporter, so guns, 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 and then just one word: Christian. <laughs> I got to tell you, man, I was like, what, what, what does your religion have to do with it? I mean, why? I mean, I think I know the answer, but I do too. 
I just like, why would you put that out there? And what does that say about the Republican Party? Anyway, your thoughts about that? Well, I think for a lot of people, when uh, especially people on the right, when you say Christian, it means you're and especially if you're a white Christian, I don't think it really applies to a black Christian. It's like. I'm an American. That's what I think stands out. I'm a real American. I'm make America great again kind of person. I think that's just, it's just a dog whistle for me. Like, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm American. That's a lot of people, when they think Christian, they think that's synonymous with American. I mean, we've never had a Jewish president, have we? Um, So, and, you know, Barack Obama was quote unquote accused and, you know, being a Muslim. So, it's like when you hear Christian, it's like, oh, you're, I'm a good person and I'm a good American. So she's just using that word to, you know, rile up certain groups of people. And that's a lot of people in the United States. I mean, Donald Trump, I don't know, from what I've understood about Christianity, I'm a Muslim, <laughs> clearly. Um, I don't really think that he embodied what I think a Christian should be, but he's a Christian. He's like, that's what he was born into. And that makes him better than someone who was a Muslim who's qualified or a Jewish person who's qualified. That's what I've seen in American culture as a lay person. It's like, if you're a Christian, you do have a leg up. So that's, it's kind of like being Irish in Chicago. If you're Irish in Chicago, it does give you a leg up. And so if you're a Christian in the United States and you're white, Hey, you got a leg up over the other candidates. If they're not, don't belong to those groups. All right, so let me ask you this. Uh, in your humble opinion, who is more likely to be elected president first? A Muslim, a Jew, or an atheist? Jewish. I think I think maybe Jewish, Muslim, and atheist. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> in other words, atheist at the bottom of the list. Yeah, atheist is at the bottom of the list. I mean, I like I I'm I believe in God, but if there was a good atheist, like it wouldn't it wouldn't sway me either way. Like, you know, I'd be like, okay, if they're they're an atheist, I mean, that's fine. They're an atheist as long as like, you know, I believe in their politics. But I think a lot of people do feel strongly about atheism. So I do. I think I think uh, I think people who are belong to a religious group, I think they would get voted in before. But I think it's going to be a while for a Muslim. But I think a Jewish person will be voted in first for sure. I definitely uh, think atheists. I don't never happen in my lifetime. It uh, it will never happen. You're right. You have. To, it's just so bizarre. The notion of an atheist. Uh, I can't even think of an atheist that was elected to local office. Maybe I'm forgetting somebody, but uh, I can't recall like an alderman who was an atheist. Uh, yeah. So it's that bedrock belief in religion uh, that is just, you have to abs- have that uh, in order to be elected. I think uh, Obama like wasn't a religious person at all. Like, you know, I mean, he obviously his father was Muslim and his mother was Christian, but and I'm not saying that he didn't care about religion, but it's like once I think he knew who was going to hold office, I think he started to going to church. So I bet there are some people who are borderline atheists who are holding public office, but they're never going to say that. They're just like they're going to be seen going to church. They're going to make sure people see them going to church, um, not necessarily the synagogue or the mosque, but uh, it's like it, it, I think that does help them with their elections. 
Uh, that is a very good point. Uh, Barack Obama, uh, when he realized that he wanted a future in Chicago as a politician, he joined a church. And then it was a whole issue of which church does he join. And, and then he leave his church, right? Because he had to denounce his Yes. And uh, so you're probably right. Uh, who knows what goes on in Barack Obama's mind? I, I don't even pretend to say I know. Uh, but I, 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 book. what's that? You can read his new book and understand a little more. Well, <laughs> I read his first two books and, uh, you know, first- yeah. Um, the second book was more like a series of campaign speeches. Yeah, of course. Uh, and this, that's why I feel like that this new one's going to be like that. Like I felt like the second one's like, okay, I know I want to run for president. And I'm going to be all about let's get together and be unified. Yeah, but you're absolutely correct. Uh, Barack Obama and his whole relation uh, with Reverend Church and how he joined the church, it sort of gave him credibility in Chicago when he was running uh, on the South side for a state Senator in Congress. And then he left the church uh, when it became uh, inconvenient to be a member of that particular church. Uh, Just, I mean, you know, it could be that he had just a legitimate difference of agreement with Reverend Wright. I, you know, I could give, give him his point on that one. Uh, all right, let's move on. Uh, Romana's recommendations. We'll close it down with Romana's recommendations. And uh, what, are you, what are you offering up? Okay, so I watched The White Tiger as you assigned to me last week and reading the book. Um, I did like it. I did have, there was a couple of things I th- thought it was lacking, but I think there were some parts of it that were really, really good. I do recommend that. And I forgot to tell you earlier when we were offline, but um, I did finish uh, the fourth season of Call My Agent. I thought I was going to just go through it slowly, but I've been, it was only six episodes. It's only yeah. six episodes. And uh, so I went through it pretty quick. I was like, oh my God, I'm done with it. And I have to tell you, Maureen O'Donnell, I recommended it to Maureen O'Donnell, who's our obituary writer. And uh, she told, I told her that Ben actually recommended it to me. So she thanked you and then thanked me. So just wanted to let you know. Um, I like, so now there's like, there's two things that have been like, I've been reading about Malcolm and Marie. Have you heard about that? It's What's a new Malcolm Marie. Malcolm and Marie is about this couple, this guy, Malcolm, he's like a movie producer or director and he wins an award and he forgets to, he forgets to thank his girlfriend. And then the whole, then they come back home and the whole movie is about their relationship un- unraveling after that awards night. But it's getting a lot of buzz. It's on Netflix. Zendaya's in it. Um, she's this young actress who was a Disney Channel star. I've been hearing a lot of buzz about that. I don't know if Mick will want to watch that, but everybody's been talking about that for the last day or so. And then there's also um, an Iranian movie. I love Iranian movies. It's called The Night. I don't know if it's, it's like a horror movie. It's a paranormal sort of um, movie, but it's also about a deteriorating relationship. As you can see, this is all about marriages and relationships breaking up, but it's supposed to be based in an LA hotel room and it's supposed to be good. There's like supernatural forces in the movie, but it's, basically about a relationship unraveling. So those are my recommendations. I've heard good things about them and I do want to see them. I don't know if I'm going to see them this week, but those are on my docket for now. How about well, you? 
I, uh, I have to say, uh, I happen to, I, w- I talked to uh, your husband who always gets thrown under the bus in the segment, Mick Dumkey, good friend of mine, booked him for the show for next week. We'll be talking straight politics. I'm really looking forward to that uh, episode. But while booking him, he withering a saw from Mick Dumkey, uh, for to me for recommending Sylvie's Love. <laughs> withering it was a wretched, horrible movie. It's... So I st- I'm like, what can I say? I, st- I just still, I just don't let this get out, but I watched it again. Um, and uh, don't tell anybody. Uh, so uh, I'm really reluctant to like, I'm kind of, I'm, it's like I'm defensive now. I love Call My Agent so much. And yes, I'm watching season four. I have two episodes to go. It's just delightful, like French soap opera. One thing I've learned is that a lot of people don't like subtitles. I've learned that. So it's... Subtitles. You don't mind, I know you don't mind them, but watching that are based in other countries. I just I just think it's important to watch films that are set in other places besides the United States. I'm with you. I'm just saying that when I recommend uh, movies with sometimes a lot of people just turn off. So I'm really reluctant to to uh, tell people to watch Call My Agent, but I, I love it. Uh, just um, the way they inflate the lives of these actors uh, and the agents, you know, have to act like their babysitters, their nannies. You just realize how obsessed we are uh, with culture. It's just a great satire on many levels. And it's a fun soap opera. Sigourney Weaver's in um, episode five. That is correct. I'm looking forward to that one. That's the next one I have uh, left. And I just got to tell you, I watched last week uh, a documentary called Mike Wallace is here. And I urge, I recommend that as well. I don't know if you've seen that, Mike Wallace. It's maybe before your before your time. It's on. He was, on, was he on 2020? No, he was on 60 Minutes for years. And uh, he's. it's more of a baby boomer thing. But I... Um, it's on Hulu, I want to say. I thought it's a fascinating documentary about a person who uh, has a public persona, but his inner persona, if you will, or the inner self is far different. He suffered from depression. Uh, he clearly didn't, you know, he w- didn't go through life with the confidence that he just exuded when he was on the air. So, Mike Wall, and plus, it's some great footage of interviews with. Mike Wallace and famous people from uh, Betty Davis to Malcolm X. So I recommend that Mike Wallace is here and I will watch white tiger. Uh, it's, I finished the book. So now I can watch the movie. Oh, so you have to let me know what you think. What's that? You'll have to let me know what you think. Yes, I will. All right, Romana, stay safe and sound and we'll talk to you next week. Okay. okay. Guys later. That's the great Romana Hussein from the Chicago sun times. D what you got for me? Romana, wait, ah, <laughs> I miss her every time. I want to throw in my suggestions for Romana. I'm going to try to remember next week, but I was going to suggest she watch uh, the entire series of Wings on NBC. <laughs> I think she may have already seen that one. It's great. Great show. Fantastic show. Great Caucasian programming uh, that NBC provided there in the 90s. All right. Uh, let's do the back half. First up. We were talking about it uh, in the first hour of the program. Another staffer has left the team of Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot. It's communications director, well, I guess now former communications director, Michael Crowley. And Ben, I guess that's leaving a lot of our Chicago journalists wondering at the moment. The following comes from the Chicago Sun-Times and Fran the Woman Spielman. This was at 1.15 this afternoon. 
and let the speculation begin. <laughs> Mayor Lori Lightfoot changed communications directors before she had even served 100 days in office. Now it's happened again, fueling questions about whether the crisis-filled times coupled with Lightfoot's abrasive management style might be making it difficult for her to hold on to good people. Fran's words, not ours, okay? Fran continues, Lightfoot's communications director Michael Crowley abruptly resigned Friday after 18 months on the job. He replaced communications director Marielle Samvelis, who didn't last four months. So why even bother pronouncing her name correctly? <laughs> Let's see here. We have a quote. <laughs> we have a quote from Crowley. Crowley said, quote, you know, as well as anyone, what an incredible and unprecedented time it's been and how much all of us pour into this job. There's a point at which you just need to move on. Crowley, 40 years old, told the Chicago Sun-Times, I've been doing it for 18 months. I'm real proud of everything we've done. I just need a minute to catch my breath, to be honest, before I figure out what my next steps are going to be. Uh, it says here, Crowley is the latest in the string of top mayoral aides to leave Lightfoot's staff before the midway point of her four-year term. So Fran's speculating a little bit. Ben, well, let's do the same. <laughs> Does Mayor Lightfoot have a bigger problem happening behind the scenes? Well, I just have to take delight in in, uh, in the premise of Fran's article. Fran Spielman's been covering City Hall for a long, long time. Uh, and like many reporters uh, in Chicago, by the way, D, oh my God, I forgot. I have to promote First Tuesday. Oh. I, <laughs> Maya's going to, oh my oh, goodness. Oh man, I wish you would have told me that. I would have been promoting Maya's it all week. Maya's going to be so mad at me. You didn't promote First Tuesday enough because we're going to have journalists on the show. We're going to be talking about press coverage. I bet you will be talking about what it's like uh, to work for uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot. But anyway, First Tuesday uh, will be coming up this Tuesday is coming Tuesday at uh, seven o'clock from the hideout. Please, 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 if you're free, um, drop in and watch us. It's a basically it's essentially raises money for the hideout, which has been devastated by the pandemic, forced to close. Let's, Matt and I have been talking politics with Gregory Pratt. Let's clarify. Um, let's clarify what uh, drop in and watch us uh, means, right? It's all virtual. Okay, yes. there we go. There we yeah, go. so you can't come and obviously, and that's why. Um, that's why it's so important to help the hideout, which opened up its doors to me, a lefty, uh, and uh, put me on the stage next to Mick Dumkey's more the moderate, and uh, allowed us uh, to have conversations for so long um, until the pandemic uh, forced the hideout to shut, close its door. Mick had moved on, and uh, Maya had joined me as my co-host. Uh, but uh, we're going to do another um, virtual one. So, uh, yes, that'll be this Tuesday at uh, 7 o'clock. I think Maya's coming on the show uh, Tuesday to promote it. Anyway, but back to, I mean, reporters don't believe anything they hear. You know what I'm saying, D? It's sort of like that line in Chicago, if your mother says she, she loves you, check it out. And so if, if, if uh, someone says X, Y, Z, the reporter's instinctive reaction is like, hmm, What's the real story? You know, and that's why you see so many uh, uh, unnamed quotes in articles where, um, all right, I'll tell you what's really going on, but don't use my name. 
And so, uh, you know, that's kind of the habit that. It, so, yeah. So if you're a reporter and you have to deal with someone like uh, Michael Crowley or uh, whoever, Anna LaFleury, whatever her name is, the new uh, press secretary, you, you develop relationships with these people. You have on the record and off the record. There's a transactional aspect to it where you know, all right, I'll tell you, I'm going to give you the canned statement and then I'm going to give you the real thing. And that's kind of the game that reporters play. And um, I, I pretty much stopped doing that game many, many years ago. I don't know. Uh, mainly because, well, <laughs> I didn't have the best of rec- uh, relationships with Chicago press secretaries, D, as you can imagine, being so critical of mayors. Uh, so I didn't have much of an opportunity to play that game, but that's kind of the game you play. And so then when a press secretary leaves the, the notion is, well, why would they walk away from like the pinnacle? Like the, that's the job that if you're in PR, that's what you would want. So automatically you don't believe it. I don't know. Do you think, I mean, just looking at it from afar, do you think Lori life would be a fun person to work for? Um, <laughs> what do you think? D? Oh, you're asking me? Who do I look like? Joanna Klonsky? <laughs> uh, you know? Yeah, that's a tough one. Uh, do you look like Joanna Klonsky? No, you do not look like <laughs> Joanna Klonsky. So uh, I I don't know if Lori Lightfoot is an a, a easy person to work for. She's She's got these moments where um, she can pre- be pretty tough. Like, remember the lakefront? Get off that lakefront. We'll take your car. But then she has that warm, soft side, like the public service announcement she made Thanksgiving when she was urging everyone not to have Thanksgiving with grandma. And then a month later, it's getting at school. So maybe Crowley was like, I don't know who to believe. Thanksgiving, Lori, or getting at school, Lori. He was having a hard time keeping up. And he just said, you know what? I'm juggling so many different points of view i can't keep track of where i'm supposed to be today i'm just walking out anyway i'm looking forward to that phone call from crowley you remember he owes me the phone call so now he's not working the phone ring ding ding, 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 ring (laughs) hi man mike crowley here uh about that interview (laughs) so you're saying i don't blame him you're saying blame anybody from Lori lightfoot's PR team not wanting their guy to come on the Ben Jarofsky show. You're saying they're having trouble uh, deciphering between this, Lori? This is the right thing to do, even though it's a hard thing to do. Of course, I'll give your love to, to Amy and Viv and Hank. All right. Love you, Mom. We'll talk on Thanksgiving. Bye-bye. Wait for the sigh. Look at the Between that, Lori, and this, Lori? I won't just turn the car around. I'm going to shut it off. I'm going to kick you out and I'm going to make you walk home. Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> Which Lori is it today? I'm losing my mind. Ah, I think I'll just quit. <laughs> I don't blame him. I wouldn't want the job in the first place, but that's just me. So best of luck to you, Michael Crowley. I had a couple conversations with you on the phone. I'm still waiting for that phone call back. Maybe I'll get it now.
<laughs> yeah, I wouldn't count on it. And finally, right before the weekend, by the way, go download this weekend's Benny J bonus interviews at chicagoreader.com and wherever you download podcasts. Our coverage on the Chicago Teachers Union and their current dispute with Mayor Lightfoot and her Chicago Public Schools team continues. The two parties are currently in negotiations as to how and when teachers will be safely returning to their classrooms. And apparently it's an issue old Michael Crowley couldn't communicate. You know what I mean, Ben? <laughs> you blame Crowley. <laughs> They're blaming Crowley. Damn it, Crowley. Come on. It's your fault. Come on, Crowley. What, you want to go jog or something? Get out. <laughs> but remember, everybody, the CPS would really like it. If the teachers returned to their classrooms and so far, the Chicago Teachers Union has been like, I don't know, seems kind of dangerous. And the CPS has been like, quit being a wimp. Get back in the classroom. Still no luck. What is that? What? That is a very good just analysis of everything that's going on. I, I got to give you credit. That was really well done. Like the two sides, you know, hey, shut up, get in that classroom. But, but there's a dead mouse there. Ah, just forget that dead mouse. Did I tell you we spent $100 million cleaning these classrooms? Get in that classroom. Still no luck on an agreement, and the CPS's plans of returning to in-person learning ASAP has been halted. Now to the latest from Stefano Esposito in the Chicago Sun-Times. The headline reads, negotiations over CPS reopening plans in a, quote, sensitive place. Ooh. I know. Negotiations over Chicago Public Schools reopening plans are in a sensitive place and are expected to continue through the weekend. That's according to union leaders on Friday. Chicago Teachers Union President Jesse Sharkey said during an online call with union members and reporters, quote, we are obviously going to keep talking. We want an agreement. If the mayor is talking about the CTU being the source of stopping things up by raising unreasonable demands, that's not true. We want to raise demands about things that matter at our school and the safety of our members and the children and allow us to get schools open in a safe way. Sharkey said teachers refusing to report to work in person are still getting threatening letters from the administration that include warnings that, quote, lockouts begin Monday. Uh, let's see here. Sharkey goes on saying they are not going to accomplish by force what they can't accomplish with persuasion. They are not going to accomplish with bullying and threats what they can't accomplish by looking at us and trying to make rational agreements with us. We're teachers. We understand how bullying works. Yeah. Well, you know, everybody knows where my instincts are in this. Uh and it's funny because I've been thinking about this, D. It's part of my soul searching. Like, why? Why are more reporters and writers uh, on this sides of the teachers in the dispute? And I realize, once again, I'm, it's kind of lonely out here. Uh, and there's just, I think there's just like a knee-jerk reaction that uh, many writers have to be against teachers in this moment. I just saw a headline, David Brooks' article, uh, essay in the New York Times, get back in those classrooms, was effectively what he was saying. Uh, I think the fact of uh, teachers organized in the unions that stand up uh, on behalf of the teachers is upsetting to many people. I think uh, there's a lot of people out there um, who feel their lives are worse than the teachers, so they don't want to feel sorry for teachers in any way. A lot of reporters have that attitude. Like if they have to write about teachers and the teachers are uh, protesting a wage, uh, what they think is an inadequate wage hike or a bullying atmosphere, the reporters go, you think you got it bad? Oh, my God, you should work in fill, for fill in the blank. 
reporters been asked to work for uh, more for less for years. So I don't think there's a lot of sympathy uh, for teachers uh, out there. And um, my attitude D is this. I've been watching the Chicago public schools for many, many years, and I have sort of the same attitude sort of Chicago public schools as Fran Spielman has for official comments released by a press spokesperson. Very dubious about their claims. And uh, so when I hear something, this is basic, we'll close down the, the show with sort of the theme of the week. When I hear the public schools say, we spent $100 million cleaning up the schools, my first thought is, where did you find that $100 million? I thought you were dead broke. So that sort of undercuts your notion that you have no money. And two, I'm like, well, then if you cleaned up the schools and did such a great job, why are there dead mice in classrooms? <laughs> Just throwing that out there, D. And um, so, yes, I think I have just a healthy what, amount of skepticism about the Chicago public schools when they make these grandiose claims. And I don't blame teachers for being a little cautious about accepting those claims at face value. All right. And there it is. A week of Ben Jarofsky shows. Remember, you can find us online at Benny J Show, B-E-N-N-Y, the letter J Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can always send us an email, Show at gmail.com. If you'd like us to read your email on the show, leave your name and where you're from. Very helpful. Also, you can call the Ben Jarofsky Show. It's true. We have a phone number, 708 658 47 That number again is 708-658-4788. We would love to hear from you. Have a great weekend, and we'll see everybody on Tuesday. I want to thank Romano Sane. She did a great job as she does every Friday. Of course, thank the man, the myth, the legend, the pride of joy in all Illinois without whom the show is possible. And as Jesse Sharkey and Lori Lightfoot will tell you, back home in Alton, they call him Mr. Money. (laughs) Dr. Money. It's Dr. Money. (laughs) Sorry. It's actually Dennis. I won't just turn the car around. I won't just turn the car around. I'm sick of every year! State Water Survey, the University of Illinois Prairie Research Institute, this is Illinois State Climatologist Trent Ford. I won't just turn the car around. I won't just turn the car around. I'm going to shut it off, I'm going to kick you out, and I'm going to make you walk home.